morning and happy Sabbath, church family. It's good to see you all after um, quite a long hiatus. I, um, like all of us, have experienced lockdown. And um, we, at the youth department, the lockdowns kind of ended when youth ministry was really ramping up for us. So end of November, we had summer camps backing onto things like Converge. So it's just been week to week, bam, 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 bam. Um, and so it's really exciting to be able to come here and see all of your faces. And this is the first time I'm actually preaching in person once again. And this morning I was reflecting that there's going to be, you know how when people are on Zoom and you're watching on Zoom and there's mute and you see their mouth moving, but no voice <laughs> is coming out or when they're, they're, face freezes in a weird position. There's going to be none of that today. So um, I'm actually very excited about that. Um, so just want to thank Roy and Jin Hart for welcoming me here um, once again today. Um, I'm just going to have a word of prayer and then um, we'll ha- dig into the message. Um, Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for your goodness, for your kindness, for this day of rest that you have blessed us with. I pray that as we open the word to learn more about who you are, that you can open our hearts and transform us from the inside out. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Suffering is the reality of the human experience. There is no person on planet Earth that hasn't experienced suffering. In fact, I think all of us, in one way or another, have suffered over the past 14 months. Think of physical suffering, perhaps those who were directly impacted by COVID, or the emotional suffering, the lockdowns and all of the associated uncertainty. Even over the past 24 hours, this case in Perth, I know, has affected one of my best friend's weddings. Um, my sister, who's supposed to be coming to Melbourne tomorrow from New Zealand, who I haven't seen in 14 months, is she going to be able to come? There's this emotional toll that is weighing on many of us. Or some of us have had to homeschool our kids for the past or for a good chunk of last year, while at the same time still trying to work out how they work full time. For some, it was being in the same physical space as other members of their family for extended periods of time, and that was taxing. Some suffered because they weren't able to eat out at their favourite restaurant with their favourite friends. Others, because they weren't able to fellowship together in the physical space of a church. I know for some of my friends in healthcare, They actually had to rearrange their living arrangements so they wouldn't put any of their um, older family members at risk. Or the mental suffering, job losses, a lack of motivation, Zoom fatigue, not knowing what to do in your work life because people are looking to you as a leader for guidance and you're still trying to work it out yourself in real time. Coronavirus and the associated changes which it has brought along with it has caused many of us to suffer. Have you suffered already this morning? Maybe some of you burnt your toast or you didn't really have a good night's sleep and you're waking up feeling that little bit lethargic. The dictionary defines suffering as the state of undergoing pain, distress or hardship. 
I have no doubt that there are people in this room that have just gone through some suffering, are currently suffering something, or are about to go through some sort of hardship. Every person suffers. What can we learn from the example of Jesus and how he ministered to those people as they suffered? We live in what social scientists call a postmodern world, but some social scientists say we've actually gone beyond that and now live in a post-postmodern world. And this means that people think, perceive, believe and process truth differently to any other previous generation. For example, my mother, that's a picture of my mum and my sister. Um, my mother grew up in the Philippines and she was introduced to Jesus and to her wider church community through her mother. She first attended church when she was 14 years old and was baptized during her senior year of high school. Before she did Bible studies, she was baptized, um, or she did, before she was baptized, she did Bible studies with Pastor Tapu. And Pastor Tapu was a friendly, outgoing, and approachable man. He would come to their Bible studies, he'd have his Bible under his arm, and he'd sit with my mother, and together they'd go through the Bible, they'd have a set of questions, and they'd go backwards and forth and fill in the blanks, and answer, all her answers would be directly from the Bible. My mum listened to Pastor Tapu because for her context and for her generation, the Bible carried with it some sort of assumed authority. And even if you're walking down Burke Street in the 1960s and you ask some random person that you came across, hey, what do you know about the Bible? What do you know about Jesus? What do you know about Christianity? Generally speaking, they would have known something they might have quoted a Bible verse. They might have named some Bible characters. They will have at least seen the Bible as some sort of inspired book. And even if they didn't see it as something inspired, they would have known that there would be something special about it. But what about today? There's a new generation that has emerged, which are growing up in a world quite different to the baby boomers, the Gen Xs, the millennials, and certainly different from the world that my mother grew up in. And these are the Gen Zs. They make up about 25% of the population. And as I looked at stats in Melbourne um, about who makes up Gen Zs, and Gen Zs are classified as those who were born after 1995, it was about 30% of people. So one, approximately one in three people you meet um, are of this Gen Z generation. And what are the Gen Zs defined by? There are five characteristics, and we're not going to go into all of them today. Um, if you would like the resource from which I pulled this from, I can definitely share with you the book. Um, Gen Z is defined by the following five factors. They are recession marked. They grew up in a post 9-11 world. They are Wi-Fi enabled. They have the internet at their fingertips. They are multiracial, sexually fluid, and post-Christian. And according to James Henry White, who is the author of Meet Generation Z, he states that most of Generation Z still believe in the existence of God, about 78% of them. But less, of half, but less than half attend weekly religious services of any kind, 41%. And only 8% would cite a religious leader as a role model. And as a result of the world they live in, 
White says that this generation is facing a dynamic world hopelessly confused about God, church, morality, and faith. There has been a seismic shift in the way information is processed in our world. The way in which we process reality has gone from an authority-based system to an information-based system. For example, up until World War II and for about 10 years after World War II, human beings were generally responsive to an authoritative figure like a pastor, like a pastor quoting authoritative words from a book such as the Bible and then yielding to that authority. However, there's a change that's taken place. This generation are Wi-Fi enabled. They are 4G, 5G enabled. They have, everyone has a smartphone. So they literally have information at their fingertips. Whatever they want to find out, they can just Google it and find out now. They no longer need someone to tell them what's true and what isn't true. Experts agree that the current developments in technology and society have presented challenges never anticipated. We live in a complicated post-Christian, secular world. People often claim that this generation is disinterested in God, and after all, they are the post-Christian generation. Which begs the question, is this generation unreachable? Perhaps it's time we start speaking the language of the Gen Zs. And I, I am not suggesting by any means that we change our message but perhaps it's time we carefully consider the methods we have or perhaps haven't used in an attempt to reach them. There's this guy called Malcolm Gladwell, and he's a, a brilliant author. He's also a Canadian journalist, New York Times bestselling author and public speaker. And in an interview, he comments on change. And he says this, I feel like I change my mind all the time. And I sort of feel like that's your responsibility as a person. As a human being, to be constantly updating your positions on as many things as possible. And if you don't contradict yourself on a regular basis, then you're not thinking. We need to move with the culture in order to be relevant to the culture. Local churches should be incubators of creativity, constantly positioning themselves to be relevant to the changing needs of their local communities. Change is to be expected in living bodies. Only the dead don't change. I remember when I first read that quote. I can't remember where I got it from. It was a profound quote. But change is to be expected in living bodies. Only the dead don't change. In 2021, a post-Christian, information-saturated age, we need to adapt our methods of evangelism to keep the mission alive. Jesus was a revolutionist of, revolutionist of his day who spoke life and hope into a world of suffering. What can we learn about his life and the way that he remained relevant to the world around him? Jesus had empathy for those he ministered to. It was often through the painful experiences of people's lives that Jesus reached out offered a word of comfort, a listening ear, healing, 
In a world of pain, he empathized. Why is empathy so important? In his best-selling book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Conveys explains that empathy is the key to effectiveness. He exhorts us, seek first to understand, then to be understood. Because sometimes it's easy to jump right into the point we want to get across, especially when you're talking to someone, without understanding or taking the time to understand where they're coming from. And there can easily be unintended miscommunication. There's a book that's called The Ministry of Healing, and it's a classic book. And in this book, Mrs. White says this. She says, Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. He showed his sympathy for them, ministered to their needs, and won their confidence. Then he bade them, follow me. We're going to break this down a little. Jesus mingled with people as one who desired their good. He opened networks. Jesus sympathized with people. He took time to listen to them. And through this, he formed attachments with them. He formed friendships. He also ministered to their needs. What were their immediate needs? He was able to provide them with that. And this also strengthened the attachments. And when you combine the first, second, and third elements, he won people's confidence. And once they trusted him, then he bade them, follow me, to become disciples. I'd invite you, if you have your Bibles, to open your Bibles to John 4. John 4. John is in the New Testament, John 4. And in John 4 we read about the encounter of Jesus with a Samaritan woman. And we're not going to read the whole whole story, but I'm just going to give an abridged version of the background before we read a couple of the verses. So in John 4, we read about the encounter of Jesus with a Samaritan woman. And it's the hottest part of the day. And generally speaking, people would rest indoors to avoid the heat of the day But this woman walked in the searing sun to draw water from Jacob's well. She came at this time of the day because she had the best chance of being alone. But here she meets Jesus and he discerns that she was an outcast, a Samaritan in Roman occupied land. And the Samaritans were looked down on. And even some of the other occupied people would ask, would say, we may be under Roman occupation, but at least we're not Samaritans. Everyone was above her. She was too low in status to have anyone to look down on. The world had made this very clear to her, day in, day out. She battled thoughts of unworthiness, rejection, shame, and pain. Now we're going to pick it up in verse 5. If you've got your Bibles with you, follow along John 4 verses 5 to 9. We'll read. So we came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given, gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Therefore Jesus, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. 
It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. I want you to put yourself in this woman's shoes. Once again, also considering that it was a different culture and a different time. But this encounter with Jesus would have been extremely awkward for her. She comes to the well and she knows that when she's done this previously, she hasn't encountered anyone. She doesn't want to see anyone understanding that she was looked down upon by everyone in her community. And so she comes to the well, it's hot, and there she meets someone. And not only does she meet someone, but this someone is a man. And not only is he a man, but he's a Jew. He's a rabbi. Even in, and it's also in broad daylight where everyone can see. And in this culture, self-respecting rabbis wouldn't even speak to their own wives in public, let alone a woman known for her questionable character. And yet Jesus speaks to her. He asks for a drink. Asking for a drink was a sign of acceptance and identification. To eat or drink with someone was a symbol of oneness. And it's going to take time to get a drink because the water's from the well. She's going to have to take her bucket and lower it down. And verse 11, if you read on in your Bibles, verse 11 tells us that the well was deep. Estimates suggest between 40 to 80 meters deep. And it's going to take a few minutes to lower your bucket, get the water, bring it back up before she hands it to Jesus. He takes it and perhaps drinks it with an expression of gratitude. And only then, when she has done something for him, is there a sense of parity in their relationship. And only then does she start feeling comfortable to ask him some questions, which she asks in verse 9. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask of me, a woman of Samaria? Although there are few words exchanged, communication is not only by words, but perhaps the body language, the facial expression, the eye contact, the lack of eye contact, the tone. In 1971, there was a study done that suggested 55% of communication is actually done through body language, 38% tone of voice, and only 7% through content. And so the majority of communication is done through nonverbal, just the nonverbal way of communicating. And as we read this passage, you read from verses John 4, 1 to 26. It will probably take you a couple of minutes to read. But their interaction in real time in person took more than a couple of minutes. This whole interaction probably took maybe 15, 30 minutes long. You see, the time that Jesus spent with her was a confidence-building measure. It was an icebreaker. He knew that he had to win her trust before he could win her heart. 
And as we read further, we see this woman sidestepping the, Jesus, the questions Jesus asked and repeatedly trying to redirect the conversation. But Jesus continued to press in on the crippling issues of her life. And gently, he uncovers the truth about her multiple, fa- multiple affairs and divorces and the resulting rejection from her community. As these painful facts come to life, He doesn't give the slightest indication of judgment. Instead, he graciously revealed God's love and forgiveness, holding out to her the thirst-quenching, pain-soothing, life-giving love of the gospel. Some of you may be familiar with the Chosen series. Season two has just come out, I think, in the past one or two weeks. This is a little... I am rejected by others. I know not by the Messiah. God is spirit, and the time is coming and is now here that it won't matter where you worship, but only that you do it in spirit and truth. Heart and mind, that, that is the kind of worshiper he's looking for. It won't matter where you're from. Or what you've done. Do you believe what I'm telling you? <laughs> Until the Messiah comes and explains everything and sorts this mess out, including me, I don't trust in anyone. You're wrong when you say that you've never received anything from God. This Messiah you speak of, I am he. The first one was named Ramin. You were a woman of purity who was excited to be married. But he wasn't a good man. He hurt you. And it made you question marriage and even the practice of your faith. The second was Farzad. On your wedding night, his skin smelled like oranges. And to this day, every time you pass by the oranges in the market, you feel guilty for leaving him. Because he was the only truly godly man you've been with. But you felt unworthy. Why are you doing this? I have not revealed myself to the public as the Messiah. You are the first. It would be good if you believed me. You picked the wrong person. I came to Samaria just to meet you. (laughs) Do you think it's an accident that I'm, I'm here in the middle of the day? I am rejected by others. I know, but not by the Messiah. And you know these things because you are the Christ. I'm going to tell everyone. I was counting on it. (laughs) 
Spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. It won't be all about mountains or temples. Soon. Just the heart. You promise. I promise. This man told me everything I've done. Oh, he must be the Christ. <laughs> Wait! You're what there? You forgot your um. Rabbi, we got food. What would you like? Ah, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Who got you food? I am rejected by others. Um, through the many interactions we read of Jesus in the Bible, we are shown the heart of the Father, a compassionate God who doesn't ignore our suffering, but instead he reaches out to us just like he did to the Samaritan woman, even in the midst of her pain and suffering. And as you read the Gospel of John, we find that ministry is local, personal, and individual. You cannot win the Samaritan woman through the TV, through the radio, through Facebook status updates, through Instagram live videos, through through retweets, but you can only win her through personal ministry. There's another quote from uh, from a um, book called Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing that says personal influence is power. We must come close to those whom we desire to benefit. The God of the universe is a God with infinite empathy. We read this and we know this. Even when we look at one of the, uh, a verse in John, John chapter one, verse 14 The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He dwelt among us as human beings. The God of the universe came down in his incarnation, which actually means into flesh. So he is able to relate to us. Jesus lived the essence of incarnational ministry. God came close. He showed us empathy You see, the Greeks thought that empathy between humans and gods was not possible and that although the god could come to the aid of human beings, there was no possibility for for the god to be able to empathize with them and there was no possibility for them to be able to understand one another. But the New Testament regards God as entirely capable of such understanding It claims that God entered into the human experience through his incarnation and through the person of Jesus Christ. God came down. He showed us humility. He wasn't some high and lofty God up there, disinterested in what's going on on earth. But he's not above coming down to where we are. He humbled himself. And God came as, as one of us. He showed us solidarity. 
He relocated to where we are. And therefore, we have a responsibility to go where the people are. Not everyone in this world is going to be responsive to an evangelist or a pastor with a book in their hand, quoting scripture as an authoritative source. At least this is the case largely in Australia. And I'm not saying that this doesn't work, but this is not the only way to reach people, especially people of this Gen Z generation. We need to think of other ways to reach them. In a postmodern or even post-postmodern age, people won't hear us unless they trust us. And people won't trust us unless we spend time with them. We need to empathize with people. We need to show that we actually care. Just as Jesus went to Samaria on purpose for this woman and showed her the care, his care, love, and how he, he ministered to her immediate needs. What would have happened if Jesus never came down to show us what the Father was like? Could he be a God you could trust? The God of the universe came down to express his love in a way so that we could comprehend it. He didn't merely tell us that he loved us, but he showed us. There's a lot of people in this world who are suffering. Are you suffering? Jesus understands your pain. He has been where you are, only far worse In Gethsemane, Jesus didn't say, my arms hurt, my ribs hurt, these nails are painful. But he said, my soul is dying. Jesus Christ is the only human being who has suffered as both man and as God. Humanity has suffered and God has suffered. In David Asherick's book, God in Pain, David writes the following. But until the incarnation, the suffering of humanity and the suffering of God were mutually exclusive. God as God did not know what it was to suffer as a human, and no human knows what it is to suffer as God suffers. But Jesus knows both. Today we can be thankful that he's not a distant God. He's a God of infinite empathy. He is Emmanuel, God with us. In the midst of our pain, he's not distant, but he's right there with us. He came to understand us. He came to sit with us. Who can you sit with? Suffering is the reality for all of us. We simply can't escape it. And everywhere people are asking, is there someone who understands He says, someone who really cares. How is the church responding to the cries of the local community? And how are you responding? Gen Zs aren't closed to the spiritual realm. In fact, they're actively seeking answers to some of the existential questions of life. Imagine if they came to understand that God is real and that he looks like Jesus that he understands everything they've gone through 
and everything that they will go through. And through the process of the pain, he's with them. Who in your sphere is suffering physical pain, emotional pain, psychological pain? Who needs a shoulder to cry on? Or perhaps a friend, someone they can rely on. Are you willing to meet people where they are? To even go out of your way, just as Jesus did, to meet the woman of Samaria? Are you willing to follow the footsteps of Jesus? Are you willing to sit with people in the midst of their pain? God is not aloof from the trials that this messy, painful and hard, yet wonderful thing we call life. He's with us. He's Emmanuel. He celebrates us when we're experiencing joy. And he also sits with us while we're living through pain. Let's sit with those around us and offer our hands in comfort and service. Because it is through our hands that they may come to know his hand. And I'll just close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, We just want to thank you that you're Emmanuel, God with us, that you understand and there is nothing in that life can throw away that you can't empathize with. Lord, you've been there only far worse. We just want to thank you that because of Jesus, we have hope. Lord, I pray that as we think about those suffering in our spheres of influence, may you put on our hearts people that might need someone to talk to, maybe even just someone to listen. We know that people are going through some rough, some rough stuff, especially this year and last year. So I just pray that um, we can minister to those around us and even we might need some ministering to as well. So I just pray that you can put people in our lives that can show us a glimpse and give us a picture of who you are. We thank you that we have a picture of you in Jesus and that your love is unconditional. And we just want to thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.